Would you take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Luke, chapter 1. Luke, chapter 1. Ben read to us from part of this chapter this morning in the scripture reading. Mary going to visit Elizabeth and Zechariah in the hill country of Judah. Immediately following that, what was already read to us, baby has leaped for joy in her womb. It gives us some words that Mary penned. We don't know that she penned them right away on this occasion. In fact, they are poetic enough to really cause us to think that, no, this took careful reflection. She sat down and put this together. It's very lyrical. It's actually a song. It's probably one of the four songs that we have in the New Testament that the early church used. Probably one of the ways that Luke knew it. Mary said this, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, for behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones. And he has exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich... Sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with Elizabeth about three months, and then she returned to her home. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, our soul magnifies the Lord. Our spirit rejoices that God is our Savior. That you have looked upon our humble estate and you've redeemed us as you promised Abraham and his offspring. Lord, as we just reflect on these words in this song for a few moments this morning, pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us to be instructed today. In Jesus' name, amen. On the handout in the bulletin with the little outline for the message this morning, my kind of opening statement for the message is, the coming of Jesus was an occasion of great joy to those who knew who he was and believed what they had been told. 
Now, we know from the events of the world, most people missed it, right? Most people missed it. No room in the inn. Many people were busy in Bethlehem. Everybody was there to be registered. All of those in positions of power in our world were oblivious. Oh, Herod the Great, when he hears what's going on, he needs to stamp it out. And he sends soldiers down to Bethlehem to have every child from the age of two and under killed. But most people were oblivious. But for those who knew why he had come and who this child was, the coming of Jesus, the events that surround it, were an occasion of great joy. And they believed what they were told. Great joy. And I just want us to think about that this morning. I want us to think about joy. Joy at Advent. One of the things that I just noticed as I have read through the accounts again, you know, I've read these accounts all my life, really. I remember as a little kid, you know, going to church from my earliest recollections, hearing the story. I remember sitting with my family around a Christmas tree, and every year before we opened our presents, one of the things my dad did was he just opened the book, and he took us to the Gospel of Luke, and my dad would read the Christmas story. And then we'd open our presents. You know, all my life, I've heard this story. And sometimes, you know, familiarity can almost breed what? Contempt. Not that it's open contempt. It's just so familiar we miss things. And we, you know, we just don't think deeply once again about the mystery and the wonder of the incarnation. One of the things that just jumped out at me as I looked at the advent of Christ again was this whole idea that it was an occasion of great joy. Now, last week, we looked at Abraham. We were in John chapter 8. We finished up John chapter 8, and at the end of John, in John chapter 8, Jesus is talking with the Jews of his day, right? You remember that? And they have said to him, you're not yet 50 years old, and do you know who Abraham is? And Jesus said what? Before Abraham began to be, before Abraham was born, before Abraham was conceived in the womb, I am pointing to the burning bush. But you'll also remember that Jesus told the Jews of his day, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it, and he was glad. Abraham is in paradise. He has physically died, and in paradise... He sees the events that we are reading about, and he what? Was happy. He rejoiced. You also see in the story, you see Elizabeth and baby John, right? Baby John is in the womb of Elizabeth. Elizabeth is an older woman, past the age of having children, Yet God, in this story, remember in the interaction that Mary has with her, with the angel Gabriel that comes to visit her, 
the angel has announced to her and said, you know, Elizabeth is going to have a child and you need to know something. There's nothing that's impossible with God because Mary is wondering, how am I going to conceive when I have not known a man? I am a virgin. And the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit's going to overshadow you and that child that will be born of you will be called the son of God. But baby John jumped for joy, right? We read that in the text. Baby John is in the womb when he hears the greeting of Mary. He jumps for joy. Mary, my soul rejoices in the Lord, my Savior. What we just read. The angels, I bring you what? Good news of great joy for all the people. The coming of Christ is not meant to be a bah humbug time of year, is it? No, it is a time when we celebrate, when we as Christians rightfully celebrate, when the world knows that we can have a good time and we can be happy in Jesus because of what God has done. It is a time for celebration. It is not a time to just be long in the nose and in the tooth and to be going around griping about all the commercialism and all the materialism and all the baloney. Is there a lot of baloney? Is there a lot of materialism? Are all those things true? There is. But look, Christian, we should look beyond it and we should give God the praise that is due to him and we should have joy in this time of year as we celebrate the incarnation of our Savior. Don't let the world rob your joy. It is a time of great joy. Now let's consider this psalm of Mary. The reason I use the word psalm there is almost every one of the statements that derives in this song, you know where it comes from? The psalms. Almost every one of the statements goes right back to one of the psalms. And she takes these statements, she takes them and she weaves them into the language that she speaks, which is Greek. And she writes for us a beautiful lyrical poem that I'm sure was sung, as we said, by the early church. It is a psalm. It is the Psalm of Mary. You know, this song tells us a whole lot about Mary. And we'll talk about a few things with her. Outside of what we know in Scripture with her having been chosen by the Lord to be the one who would bear the Lord, we would know nothing of this young woman. Like the rest of the young women in Galilee at the day, we would know nothing of her. It is this event. And so that's why she says, you know, from here on out, all generations are going to call me blessed because I am the one who is bearing the Lord. It tells us a lot about Mary, who she was. Who did God choose? What kind of person was she? The song also tells us a whole lot about God. It tells us a whole lot about God, and we'll draw our attention to a few things this morning. It is rich in biblical lyrics. Like I said, almost every statement comes from the sons of David, the songs of David. My computer, if you see this a lot, I try to catch them, but I don't always catch them. But my dumb computer, when I hit the letter G, if I don't, like, pound on it, I don't get a G. So that's why you will see. So if my spell check doesn't catch it, I probably left out a G along the way. So it's not the sons of David. It is the songs of David. Every statement, except at the beginning, 
which is tied to 1 Samuel 2 and a prayer by a woman named Hannah. Remember Hannah? And God gives to her an answer to prayer. Remember old Eli saw her praying in the temple? And Eli's like, don't come to church drunk, right? Don't come to church drunk. Your mouth is moving out of your everything coming out of your word. You know, don't come to church drunk. And what did she say? I'm not drunk. I'm just intense. I am looking to the Lord, and I want him to hear my prayer. And in her intensity and in her fervency, she presents her petition to the Lord. There's something to be said there for intensity and fervency in prayer. God hears her prayer and gives her a son. And Mary is almost reflective of what happened to Hannah and now ties that to her scenario and her situation. Here's some things to note about Mary. One thing specifically. First one is this. She was well-educated. You know, there's a lot of things in, what's the word I want, history that is all rewritten for us today and talk about some of these things, you know, you know, all through the ages, women have been oppressed and held down by men and weren't, you know, just had to be kept dumb. That is not true of Jewish women in the first century at all. They were well-educated. Mary knows her Bible. She knows the Old Testament scripture. She has been educated. It is important to note that education has always been important to Christians. God puts no premium on being stupid. That's why the church has always believed in teaching things like literacy. Why? Because we want you to go home and read this book for yourself. We don't want you just to come here and have somebody stand up in front of you and tell you what it means and what you need to do. We want you to take this book and we want you to study it for yourself to know God's will and God's way. And we want to reinforce that. But we do not want to be the one who stands between you and God and tells you what it is. No, we want you to know the truth. Because as we studied in John 8, what? The truth will set you free. The church has always believed in education. God's word has always put a premium on this. She was well-educated. And so we need to shatter myths about, you know, we as biblical Christians need to reflect to the culture what it looks like to be a biblical man and what it looks like to be a biblical woman. And we need to shatter these myths that are out there that the Bible is somehow teaching oppression. Biblical complementarity, which basically complementarity is the belief that God created two genders, male and female, and those two genders are what? Equal before God. Equal before God but different, right? We're different. Men think like men. 
And I'm still not quite sure how women think. No, I'm just, oh, sorry. And all you women are saying that guy, he had oppressive, toxic masculinity coming out in him right now. No. You know, God has created men and God has created women, and together we are mankind. We are humanity created in the image of God, and it is a beautiful thing before God to be a biblical man and to lead. And women, it is a beautiful thing to be a woman of God who understands God's word and lives God's word. And together as a Christian home and as individual Christian singles, living under that knowledge of God's order to reflect that to the world, that's what the world needs to see. Okay, let's go on. The flow of the text. Let's think about some things I want to just draw your attention to. First of all, she says, my soul, right? My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. We'll come back to that. And then I want you to look in the text, and I want you to just in your mind or in your Bible, circle the word for. And this word for is like saying because. So, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. So we would then ask, so why is your soul rejoicing? You know, why are you magnifying the Lord? It is because of three things. Number one, because he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. The word servant there is the Greek word doulos. It means a slave. Mary is saying, I am a slave of the Lord, just like Paul said, didn't he? I am the Lord's slave, magnifying even that position that Jesus says all through the New Testament. Who is the one who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? The one who is the servant of all. It looked on the humble estate of his servant. That's the first reason. And we're going to look at that in just a minute. But the first thing I want you to note is, She is excited. She is rejoicing because God looked at her. And she's a slave. And he noticed her. Number two, because behold. Notice that word she throws in, behold. It's like saying, unbelievable. For unbelievable. This is unbelievable. From now on, all generations, and I I, I want you to circle the word me, will call me. I'm a slave. I'm from a humble estate. I'm a nothing in the world. And yet from now on, all the world is going to call me blessed. That's the second reason. And the third one is this. For the one who is mighty has done great things for me. His name is holy. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. She's there alluding to the promise in the Ten Commandments that God shows mercy and keeps covenant with those who love him 
to a thousand generations. To a thousand generations, she says, he shows his mercy. So there are three reasons to rejoice. From there on out in this hymn, we are given a lot of things that God has done. So what has God done? Well, he's the creator, created heaven and earth, everything we see. What are some other things that God has done? Oh, wow. He has shown strength with his arm. How has he shown strength with his arm? He scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. What else has God done? It's he who brings down the mighty from their thrones. It is he who exalts the ones who are in humble positions. It's he who fills the hungry with good things, but the rich get sent away with nothing. It's he who has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. We're not going to look at that part of the song very much at all today, but I want to just draw your attention to something really interesting that, that really filled some of my study and my thinking this week. When it tells us here, he has filled the hungry with good things, but the rich get sent away empty. Last week, I mentioned in Luke chapter 16, a, a story that Jesus tells about a rich man and a poor man. The rich man and Lazarus. And Lazarus had nothing. His body was filled with sores and he sits at the gate begging for anything and the dogs would come and would clean his wounds. And he died. When he died, the angels came and got him. Took him to paradise. Now, we are not told in the scripture anywhere that because you are rich, you're damned, right? Now, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because he trusts his riches instead of God. Pride. But can you be poor and proud? Yeah, you can like old Dave Ramsey says, I've met a lot of rich people that are jerks. But I've met a lot of rich people who love the Lord. I've met a lot of poor people who love the Lord. I've met some poor people who are jerks. Money's just money. It's what your heart does with it. It's not the riches on earth or the poverty on earth that establishes where you go. But it is striking to note that this person who was rich, who is not named in the scripture, in hell he lifted up his eyes. And the thing that I want to just draw our attention there to is this. God fills the hungry with good things, but he doesn't always fill the hungry with good things in this life. Lazarus sat at the gate until the angel picked him up and took him to glory. But when he got to glory, he was filled with good things. And the rich man 
had everything he wanted, and he trusted in his riches. And when he died, he lifted up his eyes in hell, being in torment. This tells us what God has done. That's the flow of the text. Let's consider some things. First of all, let's just talk about God for a minute. And let's think about some things we learn about God in this text. Uh, We learn some things about who he is. We also learn some things about what he does. Correct? Who he is and what he does. So who is he? He is the Lord. He is God, my Savior. He is the Mighty One. He is holy. He is a God of mercy. That's his character. And all those things are embedded in this song. It tells us many things about God. God is a promise-keeping God. God made promise to Abraham. It is 2,000 years later, but finally, the promise of God is coming to fruition. And Jesus comes. So we see who he is. We also see what he does. Now, this is true of all the songs in the scripture. I think it should also be reflective of the kind of songs that we as Christians sing in worship. That when we sing songs in worship to him, they reflect back to him his nature, who he is, immortal, invisible, God only wise. All those songs that we sing, my God is an awesome God. He reigns. We also sing about things that he does. He saves us. He reaches out to us in our poor state. He offers us redemption. These are things we learn about God. What has God done? He looked. And this is what I really want to draw your attention to this morning. Look with me at the first verses of this text. When he said, when Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And then we saw the three fours. For he has looked. And because he has looked, now all generations will call me blessed. And I can put my name in that. Because he looked upon me in favor and lifted me out of my lowest state and my sinful state. And he saved me. He is my savior. My spirit rejoices in God, my savior. That says something about Mary. Mary needed a savior. Right? God, my savior. He's looked on my humble estate, so I am blessed. And all generations will regard me such. And then the third one, because he who is mighty has done great things for me. Let's consider these. Number one, he looked. He looked. What we notice says a lot about who we are. Doesn't it? What do you notice? Guys, you come home from work one night and your wife has rearranged the house and Fixed herself all up, whatever. You come in the house and you don't even notice. Many times we as men do that kind of stuff, don't we? We don't notice things. My wife notices everything. I mean, she just notices everything. 
What we notice says a lot about who we are. And what we are seeing here in the scripture is this. Mary says, God noticed That word to look literally is that kind of word. It's not like he just looked at me in passing. It's a word to take careful note, to look at intently. And what we notice says a lot about who we are. God notices he is not preoccupied mentally. Isn't that amazing to think? Just think with me for a minute. That God, the creator of the universes, he, he knows you by name and he notices you. He looks upon our humble estate. He looks upon our suffering. He looks upon our difficult, difficult times, and he takes note of it. It's reminiscent of Exodus, isn't it? In the book of Exodus, when God is talking to Moses at the burning bush, he says, I have noticed, I have heard the cry of my people in bondage in Egypt. I have noticed it. And yet, for what? 430 years, the Jewish people languished in that condition. My friend, our calendar is not God's. It is not. 400 years is a long time. Who knows what happened 250 years ago yesterday. The Boston Tea Party. Did you know that? I didn't know that. Somebody told me that this morning. 250 years ago, that's a long time. I didn't even know what happened in December. That shows how good I am at history. I'm like, how did those poor Indians dressed up as Indians not freeze when they're on those boats heaving tea into the Boston harbor. But anyway, you know, 250 years ago, that's a long time. The Jewish people languished in slavery for 400 years. But God was taking note. When things seem long in your life, don't lose hope. God takes note. He looked. I was reading the transcript of a sermon that R.C. Sproul preached on this text several years ago, a couple years before he passed away. When he was preaching on this, he told a story that was really remarkable to me. It it was a story of R.C. Sproul was going uh, to to visit someone in the hospital from his church. And he got off the elevator when he came to the floor where this person in his church was and he got off the elevator and he walked out you know how when you get off the elevator in a hospital you're usually right at the nurse's desk well he gets off the elevator and he gets coming into that foyer area and he's going to go talk to the nurse uh, about going to see this patient in the hospital and he notices a doctor also comes out of one of the rooms and walks into that area. And this nurse who has been working on her books noticed him. Taylor looks up and smiles all big and says, hello, Dr. So-and-so. It's so good to see you. And just gets into a conversation with this doctor. And then R.C. Sproul watches this lady picked up her stuff and began to go down the hall. And his eyes followed the nurse. And as she walked down the hall... Coming the other direction was a man 
who was obviously more poor. He was pushing a cart that was full of the laundry from all the rooms. And as he was pushing the cart up the hall, he was looking at the nurse like, are you going to notice me? And the nurse turned and looked the other way and did not acknowledge him. Who do you notice? God notices each of us. Does not matter if we are the doctor with all the pedigree or we are the man who is cleaning the laundry. God knows and he notices. So what is Mary's response? Let's just kind of bring the message to a close with these things. Now, first of all, you will notice that in what Mary says in this verse, in verse 46 and 47, is what we call a parallelism in lyrical poetry from the first century. There are three things that act as parallels to reinforce a thought. So the first thing she says, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit. That is not meant to be like two different things. No, they are meant to be parallel to each other, to just speak of her inner being. All, everything that is in her, her heart, my soul, my spirit, everything who is in, what is in me is magnifying, is rejoicing. So there is an amplification in the parallelism. There is also a magnification and a rejoicing. Those two things are not meant to kind of mean different things. They are kind of meant to amplify the same thought. She is magnifying God by rejoicing. And then the third thing is, he is Lord, he is Yahweh, he is Jehovah, we talked about that last week, and Jehovah is who? My Savior. And so there is an amplification here. It is the Lord, my Savior. So there are two things that Mary does in this response. Number one, she is seeking to magnify God, and she is rejoicing in him. So what does it mean to magnify? Let's just think about that for a minute. We kind of know what it means to rejoice. What does it mean to magnify? Well, if I have a pair of binoculars and there's an elk on a far hill and I look through my binoculars, my binoculars are doing what? They're magnifying, they're enlarging the elk on the distant hill. The elk is very far. It brings it near. It makes it bigger in one sense. Although, really, the elk is left untouched. But it makes it seem bigger. So I can see and can focus on what it is. When we magnify God, we don't make him bigger. He fills all the universe. We bring him nearer, don't we? We bring him into focus. And when we rejoice in the Lord, our Savior, 
and we teach who he is and what he has done, to most of the world, God seems like some abstract being who is removed from every part of their life. They don't know who he is. They kind of just are like, you know, I want to have a good relationship with God, but I just hope he leaves me alone, right? I don't want anything to do with him until I die. Then I hope everything's good. That's kind of the most way, you know, we kind of tend to want to think in the world. And the world just doesn't know much about God or who he is and what he does. But when you as I as Christians proclaim him in what he has done and who he is, all of a sudden this God that seems so far away comes into focus and is right here. That's our job as Christians, to magnify the Lord. And the way we do that is by walking around like, oh, life is so bad. The world's going to pot. Everything's falling apart. Griping and groaning and mumbling under our breath about everything that happens. Wow, that makes God seem real and relevant. No, what are we to do? Rejoice. When we rejoice. Mary's perspective brought her joy. The personal trial she was going through was eclipsed by the joy of God's promise. Did Mary have some hard times? You bet. As soon as she finds out from Gabriel that she has conceived in her womb, what does it say? She went with haste. Did you notice that in the text? She went with haste to see Elizabeth. She was getting out of Dodge. I mean, she know my life is going to be miserable because nobody's going to believe this story, right? Nobody's going to believe this story. And yet she has a great personal trial. But do you see any part of that trial in the hymn that she has written? No. What did she say? God Almighty has done great things for me, and I am glad. So her personal trial does not rob her of the joy of God's blessing. And sometimes when trial comes our way, we lose our joy. You know, even if no one else believed her, she knew God had begun to act. And he was fulfilling a promise he had made 2,000 years before. So let's just close with this. What are you looking for joy in life in? I mean, let's be serious. What are you looking for joy in? Is it your circumstances? Is that where your joy comes from? Is it your job? Is it some substance? How many people just want to check out in life because they don't like their life? They don't like their circumstances. They don't want to face reality. I'm going to check out. Why do we got a fentanyl problem in America? It is not just because the Chinese are flooding us. It is because there is a supply and demand issue. Right? There is a demand issue. If nobody would buy the stuff, they would quit selling it. But because we want it, because we want to check out on our miserable lives, they flood it. America's got a big problem. It's because we're sick in our heart. 
And we're looking to substances to bring us joy. Are we looking to just people? Wow, people will let you down. Or are we looking to Yahweh God? The one who always keeps his promises. And the one who never changes. That is where true joy comes from. And if you build your life on this, then all these things come into greater focus and have deeper meaning, right? Because if you build your life on this and you find your joy in Jesus, then you will love people. And you will have deep and lasting relationships. And although your circumstances sometimes in life just flat stink, Yet you'll look beyond them because there is joy in knowing Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Forgive us, Lord, that many times we lose our joy in life. We let circumstances rob us of your blessing. I know I have. So many times. Busyness, whatever the case may be, preoccupation. Thank you, Lord, that you take note, that you know us. May we find our joy in that. In Jesus' name.